you go down the list, you also have saved by works and water baptism, which would mainly be the Campbellites, the Church of Christ, restoration movement. As I say, our attitude toward churches of Christ generally is in response to those who have been have been aggressively denunciatory of us. Yes. And we don't go out here just picking on churches of Christ per se. If they attack us, if they come toward us, then we respond. Now, I guess what we better do then is since the doctrines of the Church of Christ uh, obviously um, fulfill your standard or definition of what a cult is, we probably better go to that at this point because um, you have said that you agree with parts of the dictionary definition, but obviously there's more to it. Uh, what What is your definition of a cult? Well, uh, Brother uh, uh, Larry here is holding up a little uh, definition that I copied this from Larson's book. As, as you may recall, Mr. Bennett, who was representative of the Church of Christ in one of our TV debates, he mentioned Larson's book, and he said Larson didn't uh, mention Churches of Christ in this book, so uh, I got the impression that because Larson didn't mention them, Mr. Bennett was saying uh, Larson doesn't regard them as a cult. But uh, at the same time, Larson doesn't mention in here the Seventh-day Adventists, which Mr. Bennett thinks they're a cult, and he doesn't mention Roman Catholicism, and Bennett thinks they're a cult, and of course he doesn't mention Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, and Bennett thinks that they are cults. So it did very little weight for him to say that Larson didn't mention them in the book, and so therefore they weren't a cult. But now, there's a book written by Bob Lawson on the book of cults, page 19, and he said that there are two factors used in the evaluation of a group that is a cult. Now, this is, these are the two points that he makes. Number one, uh, if it ignores or purposely omits apostolic doctrines. Number two, if it holds to beliefs that are distinctly opposed to orthodox Christianity. But if you notice here, I have, uh, this is from Larson, page 31, chapter 4, A Christian Perspective on Cults, and he has two contingent factors which evaluate whether a group is culty. All right. Number one, if they ignore or purposely omit central apostolic doctrines. So. These are ignored or omitted, and I think he could have added in there they are uh, perverted. distorted, perverted. perverted yeah. yeah. Then he goes on with number two in his definition. If they hold to beliefs which are distinctively opposite to the orthodox Christianity. Now, beliefs which are distinctively opposite to orthodox Christianity. Now, on this point... I personally, uh, when I look at a religious group or a religious teacher or a religious book, my first question is, what is the doctrine that is being taught under this theme of the gospel? Mm -hmm. What is their gospel? Mm -hmm. What message do they bring to men that explains to men the way of salvation? Yes. Now, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I say that any message that deviates from Jesus Christ as being the way to God 
and that deviates in such a way that it misleads people, that it misdirects people, that it puts something in the way of Christ or in addition to Christ or subtracts from Christ. This is a false gospel. You know, Paul talked about uh, someone coming and preaching another gospel, yes. another Jesus, Galatians and 1. another spirit. Now, that is, that is possible. Not only is it possible, but it's going on in the world. Another Jesus is being preached. Another gospel is being preached. Now, on this point here, this is the major element so far as I personally am concerned. Yes. Uh, because uh, if they're wrong on the gospel, then what does it matter if they're right about everything else? Right. And uh, if they're uh, wrong on everything else and right on the gospel, then uh, at least they're right on the major point of doctrine, of truth, of teaching. So on this point here, when I look at the word cult, and we are taking Larson's definitions, for instance, here on this, I find that, uh, at least in my judgment, as I understand the teachings of the Bible, that the belief on the gospel adhered to by the mainline or hardline Church of Christ uh, group is an error because on this point they add baptism to the gospel and uh, from there of course they go on to teach the idea that without baptism you're not saved and uh, then you have to uh, do all these other things they've got their so-called five acts of worship in the church that you have to do and you, you just have to keep going on. And in effect, what they're teaching is what we would regard as salvation by works. Yeah. In fact, you know what's funny about the Church of Christ is uh, they pretty much spawned a lot of the other cults. Back in the 1800s in mm. the United States, uh, you've got the Campbellites starting the Church of Christ, but out of them mm. came Mormonism. Mm. Out of them came Jehovah's Witnesses. It's so one heresy begets another heresy. My name is Jerry Johnson, and I'm host of What Does the Bible Say? We are going to be discussing a vitally important issue, is baptism essential for salvation? Before we get into the discussion, there are a few things I want to make clear to the people at home and to the audience here. Our purpose and our intention is not to win a debate or win an argument. Our one main purpose, because everybody here agrees that there is only one gospel plan of salvation, and that there is only one way to obtain salvation, and both groups have a different view of how that salvation is obtained. And because of that, we hope to have a discussion, examine the scriptural evidence, and ultimately come to the truth. So because of that, I want to ask that there is no clapping, no cheering, or no outburst of any kind, and that every panel member be shown the utmost respect. Representing historic evangelical Christianity is Bob L. Ross, director of Pilgrim Publications in Pasadena, Texas. Bob is the publisher of Charles Spurgeon's works and sermons, and he has also authored several books, including his bestseller, Campbellism, Its History and Its Heresies. 
Representing also historic evangelical Christianity is Dr. Robert A. Morey, who has earned degrees in philosophy, theology, and the cults. He is the executive director of the Research Education Foundation and is the author of over 20 books which have been translated into over seven different languages, including his latest book, Islam Unveiled, The True Desert Storm. Representing the Churches of Christ is Bobby Duncan. Bobby presently serves a congregation in Adamsville, Alabama. He attended Freed Hardman, Jacksonville State, Birmingham Southern, and received his master's degree in Bible from the Alabama Christian School of Religion. Next to him is Don McCorder. Don attended the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and graduated from David Lipscomb University. He has preached in Chattanooga and Gadsden, Alabama, and presently serves a congregation in Fayette, Alabama. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming today. My first question is going to go to you, Dr. Morey. What is the historic evangelical Christian view of baptism and how it relates to salvation? I think it's important that we define our terms correctly. And if we do, we will understand that the Bible tells us in Hebrews 5 and verse 9 that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to those who will obey him. This obedience means that there are things to do and there are certain things to do before you are saved when God has in mind sinners, those who are unrepentant, they are unbelievers, they are referred to as the children of the devil, and God gives certain commands to the lost. And these commands have to do with justification. That is, how can someone be right in the presence of God? It has to do with conversion. And we find a summary of this gospel preaching in Acts 20 and verse 21. Here the apostle Paul said that to the Jews and to the Gentiles I preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus you find repentance and faith because it's one act as I turn to Christ, I am turning away from sin. If I turn from sin, I can turn to Christ. These are the things that are referred to as the commands that are given to the unrepentant, unbelieving sinners. This is when Christ enters the heart. Now you are a saint instead of a sinner. Now you are a repentant believer instead of an unrepentant unbeliever. Now you are viewed as a child of God, not as a child of the devil. Thus you have commands, and there's hundreds of them that are given in the Bible, that are not given in order that you might be saved, in order that you might become a Christian. Instead, these are commandments that are given because you are a Christian. This has to do with sanctification, which has to do with the Christian life, not justification. Those who are repentant believers are told to be baptized, have the Lord's Supper, they join the church, they attend a church, they give their monies, husbands are to love their wives, wives submit to their husbands. There's hundreds of commands that assume that the person you're talking to is a repentant believer. All of the cults be it the Mormons, United Church of Christ, uh, the uh, Churches of Christ, United Pentecostals, or whoever, always take things from this side, a ledger, and move them over. Regardless if they say church membership, you have to be a member of our group. That's in addition to repentant believer. You have to take the Lord's Supper. You have to give your money to our group. You have to be baptized. But you see, such things as baptism 
do not refer to what unrepentant, unbelieving people do. You do not run out in the street and just baptize anyone. You do not run out in the street and give the Lord's Supper to anyone. Baptism is clearly for those who believe in Christ, who have repented of their sin, and baptism symbolizes this process. Thus, the evangelical faith, be it the faith preached by the great evangelists Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, uh, great preachers like Spurgeon, evangelists like Whitfield and uh, uh, Edwards, emphasized that the obedience of repentance and faith leads you to Christ. And that's why I think an illustration in closing is that of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Here we have the case of an unrepentant unbeliever who was viewed as a child of the devil. Cornelius was told to send for Peter that he might hear how he might be saved. So Cornelius was not a believer. He was a sinner under the wrath of God. And Peter preached, whosoever believes in him, as a result he believed He repented, he became now a repentant believer, a child of God. Then he was baptized, and his baptism was given in response to the fact that it was clear that this Gentile had been truly saved because he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He spoke in tongues, and Peter said, just like we did, and that refers to Pentecost. So here we have proof that the Gentiles were just as saved As the Jews, they repented, they believed, they were saved. Therefore, they were baptized in response to the fact that they were repentant believers. This is why we oppose all those cults that try to move things from this side of the ledger over to this side of the ledger. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Morey. Dr. or I'm sorry, Mr. McCorder, would you like to respond? All right, I would like to have chart number one, please. I want to respond to some things by looking, first of all, at what the Bible says about uh, the matter of salvation and the connection that baptism has to salvation. There is a common rule of Bible interpretation that when salvation is offered on some condition, it can never require less, though it may require more than what is mentioned in that particular verse. Would you put up, please, uh, chart number three? Here's a classic example. Here's uh, an example from the scriptures of when they came to arrest Jesus. There were two groups of people. Uh, One group was with the group that came to arrest Jesus. One was with the group that uh, was with Jesus. Uh, There was someone who had an ear cut off with a sword. You will not know the whole story unless you read every one of those verses. Each one reveals something that is not found otherwise in the scripture itself. So it's necessary to put the whole thing together. The prime principle under consideration is that one mentioned uh, by the inspired writer in Psalm 119 verse 160 when he said the sum of thy word is truth. Would you put up please number eight? Number eight deals with the Great Commission. In the Great Commission you find what God would have us do. That's not the one I'm looking for. We have them numbered evidently. The Great Commission, here we are. John 20, 23, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 and 16, Luke 24, 46 and 47. John 20, 23 says, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. On what conditions? He doesn't say in that verse. 
in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go teach all nations, baptizing. Now we know how sins are to be remitted. People are to be taught and baptized, but still we don't have all the truth. The third scripture, Mark 16, 15 and 16, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We still have more truth. Luke 24, 46 and 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. Now we have the entire truth. Here's the principle. The sum of thy word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 160. Put up chart number 13, please. If it is true that faith always includes repentance, this is, we're out of order again. We need the one on unsaved believers. Unsaved believers. If it is true that belief includes repentance, which I had never heard before, uh, the classic position is that men are saved by faith only. Uh, and here are many rulers that Jesus said believed in him, John 12, 42 and 43. But they were not saved. They would not confess him before men, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Believers, Greek word pistis is used, same word that's always used for faith or belief. Jesus said to many Jews in John 8, 30, that if they would continue to believe in him, they would be his disciples. They were believers, but he said in verse 44, ye are of your father the devil. Even the devils believe, the demons, James 2 verse 19, believe so much that they tremble. Does faith always include repentance? Repentance is an entirely separate action from faith. Paul said to King Agrippa, uh, King Agrippa, I know you believe the prophets. What did the prophets say? Acts 10 verse 43. The prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah and that salvation would come through this Messiah. King Agrippa believed that. Paul said, I know you believe that. Either Paul was mistaken or King Agrippa did believe that, but still King Agrippa was not a Christian. King Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Put up chart number 19, please. By faith plus. By faith plus. Since faith and repentance are not only one minute, inasmuch as salvation is by faith, but is not by faith only, it must be by faith plus. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's faith. But he told those who had that faith when they said, what must we do to be saved? Repent. Nothing said about faith. They already had it. Separate action. Repent and be baptized. Romans 10.9 and 10, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Baptism, Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So the sum of thy word is truth. Put up finally uh, chart number 32. Last chart in the group. Concerning Cornelius, Peter will tell you words whereby you will be saved, Acts 11 verse 14. Acts 15, 9, they were saved by faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. God chose Peter that by his mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and be saved, Acts 15, 7. The Holy Spirit began to speak uh, began, uh, as Peter began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. Now, if they were saved by words, how could they have been saved when the Holy Spirit fell? How could they have been saved by faith? It had to be at the end of the sermon. At the end of the sermon, what did he do once they had faith? He commanded them to be baptized. Why? For the only reason people were ever asked to be baptized. For the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. To be saved, Mark 16.16. 16. For the commands that are always connected together. Salvation always coming after 
baptism. Never before, not in one instance, do you find any man called a believer who is saved until after he is baptized. I'd be delighted to. Okay. I want to say, first of all, that I'm delighted to have the opportunity of being a part of this panel and of discussing what I believe the Bible teaches. And I would like to emphasize the fact that this is a question of how much faith we have in exactly what the Word of God says. I really believe that uh, it needs to be emphasized that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We're not discussing whether or not we're saved by grace, nor whether we're uh, saved by faith. Uh, we're discussing just exactly what is involved in salvation, which is by grace, and salvation, which is by faith. I want to mention one or two illustrations from the Bible to show that sometimes those things which are commanded might not be in harmony with our own human reasoning. For example, when God gave Joshua and the Israelites the city of Jericho in Joshua 6, God commanded that they march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. Now, that was a command of God. God had said to Joshua, I have given thee the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was given to the Israelites by God's grace. And yet there was a command, a rather foolish command from a human standpoint, that had to be obeyed before God gave them the city of Jericho. That uh, obedience to that command was the condition upon which the city of Jericho was to be given. In John 9, when Jesus gave sight to the blind man, he anointed his eyes with clay and sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam and told him he would receive his sight. Now, I'm sure all of us understand that it was by the grace of our Lord that this man received his sight. There's no question about that. The question is, did he have to do what the Lord said do in order to be forgiven. And I submit to you that baptism is a command which is given to us. We're not saved by baptism within itself and because of the power of baptism. But the Bible does clearly teach in a number of passages that the alien sinner, never the child of God, was commanded to be baptized. I do not know of a single passage in the New Testament which commands the child of God to be baptized as I think of such passages as Acts 2.38, uh, that was given in answer to a group of sinners who had crucified the Lord. And they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That was in answer to the question, What shall we do? They wanted to know what to do that they might be saved. Peter gave them the answer to that question. And lest anybody understand, he said, It's for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized. Why, Peter? for the remission of sins. And then in Acts 8, immediately when Philip had preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And immediately the baptism took place. And in Acts chapter 10, could uh, we have once again, please, the chart on Cornelius? That's number 32. Chart number 32 on the conversion of Cornelius. Don was running out of time as uh, he talked about that, and I want to emphasize once again the point that in Acts 11 and 14, the angel had said to Cornelius,
Cornelius, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou shalt be saved. He was to be saved by the words that he heard. Now Romans 10, 17 tells us that he couldn't even believe until he heard those words. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But then Peter said in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. The purpose of that, as uh, Dr. Morey pointed out, was to show that there is no distinction to be made between Jews and Gentiles, but that all are equal. It was not for the purpose of saving them or approving they were saved but for the very purpose that Dr. Morey pointed out. But the Holy Spirit fell on them as Peter began to speak. It was after the Holy Ghost fell on them that Peter spoke the words whereby they might be saved. And of course, verse 48 says that he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 2.38 says that baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus is for the remission of sins. So God's plan of salvation, despite the historic evangelical Christianity's position, God's position is that the sinner must hear and believe the gospel, put his faith and trust in the Lord, and then obey him by confessing Christ and being baptized so that his sins will be forgiven. Thank you, Bobby. Bob Ross, you got anything you'd like to add? Well, how long do I have here? You got about five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. Well, uh... These brethren here from the Church of Christ, it's amusing about their doctrine because I've repented, I've believed, and I've been baptized, and I was baptized for the remission of sins. But they do not regard me as a Christian. And uh, they have not brought it out in this debate. They have zeroed in on keeping their attention on verses. But uh, they are a part of a movement which believes that they are the only Christians in the world. Despite the fact that I've believed in Christ, I've repented of my sins, and I've been baptized, and I was baptized in accordance with Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, 16, 1 Peter 3.21, Romans 6, verses 3 to 6, Galatians 3.26 and 27, all the verses they quote, I've obeyed every one of them. But they do not accept me as a Christian. Now here's the monkey wrench in their doctrine. They believe that you have to belong to the Church of Christ to be a Christian. They believe that you have to believe that baptism is in order to obtain the remission of sins in order for it to be valid. Now that's why that we classify them in the category of a cult. They become exclusivists in their claim for salvation. They claim they're the one and only ones. And all this interpretation that they've been putting up here on the wall is actually, or on the screen, is actually geared to get you to believe and to think that the Church of Christ is the one and only group of saved people. Now, if we've got Baptists in this audience today, according to these people, you're not saved. If we've got Methodists in this audience today, according to these men, you're not saved. If we've got Presbyterians in this audience today, according to these men, you're not saved. If we've got others in this audience today, according to these men, you're not saved. Now why? Because although you've believed in Christ, although you've repented, 
And although you were baptized for the remission of sins, if you did not believe it as these gentlemen believe it in theory, that Acts 2.38 means that you have to understand that your sins are being actually remitted when you're baptized. You can't believe that in the historical sense as a sign, as a representation, as a symbol. They talk about the Lord's Supper, this is my blood, this is my body. Now they don't agree with the Catholics on that, but they agree with the Catholics on baptism. That one must believe that baptism is actually literally in order to obtain the remission of sins. Now, they exclude everyone else from salvation. Now, that's my complaint with these brethren and their church. And that's why we classify them as a cult, because they become exclusivists in their claims and shut out all other evangelical Christians. Now, that's why we are representing historical Christianity here. Now, the chart he put up on rule of interpretation, just put that up, brother, if you will. I want to just show you the fallacy of their thinking here. Now you put this up. Now they claim to speak where the Bible speaks and silent where the Bible is silent. Where is this in the Bible? This says it's a rule of interpretation. It's not in the Bible. Now who gave them this rule of interpretation? Where did they get it? You know why they have this interpretation, this rule as they call it? Because they want to add to. See that word more? Though it may require more, they want to add to the Word of God. They do not believe that a man is saved in Mark 16, 16. One minute. One minute. They do not believe a man is saved who obeyed Mark 16, 16. He that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. They believe he's on probation. If he joins the church of Christ, wears the right name, obeys the elders, keeps the Lord's Supper every Sunday, gives to the church every Sunday, and holds out faithful to the end, and does everything they command him to do, he may be saved. They believe he's on probation. But we believe, John 3.36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And the man in Mark 16.16 16 is the same man in John 3.36. That's why he's going to be saved, you see. And so that's my gripe and complaint with this church that I've debated them for 30-something years. They do not recognize faith in Jesus Christ as it's taught in John 3.16, 3.18, 3.36. I'll give up this debate if either one of these men will say that he was not condemned when he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ before his baptism. I don't know of anything in the world that is more pleasurable or more fun or more profitable than a study of the Word of God. And in today's rather spineless world, I appreciate the fact that there are these other gentlemen here who... Uh, are convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, who are convinced that when people learn what God's Word is and will do it, that the grace of God saves them. I want to address that question in just a moment, but first of all, I would like to give a little bit of attention to some statements that were made by Mr. Ross in uh, our last program. First of all, would you put on the board, please, our chart number one. Mr. Ross found some objection to this. Rule of interpretation, when salvation is offered on some condition, it can never require less, though it may require more than what is mentioned in that particular verse. He says, now that's not in the Bible. Well, Psalm 119, verse 160 says, the sum of thy word is truth. In the Great Commission, there is no one verse that tells what a man has to do in order to be saved. It takes all four of the gospel accounts to learn what Jesus said a man has to do to be saved, or else Jesus gave us what we did not need. Then we 
could look at some particular verses. For example, Acts 2.38, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in order that you may receive the forgiveness of sins. I would ask, Mr. Ross, now, does it require more than that? If not, then man is saved on the basis of repenting and being baptized. That's all that verse says. It does require more than that. Even I, who believe that a man must be baptized to be saved, and Mr. Ross, who does not believe so, even I believe that it requires more than Acts 2.38. He says that is not true, that if you find anything stated in the Bible, it never requires any more than that particular thing. He said he believes and he has repented and he has been baptized for the remission of sins. But he said he's not been baptized in order to obtain the remission of sins. A lot of difference in the Greek New Testament and the word for and the English language and the word for. He talked about the fact that he accused the Church of Christ of saying you have to receive Church of Christ baptism. No, you have to receive Bible baptism. It doesn't matter who does the baptizing, just so long as a man is baptized in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins. Now, in his denomination, it doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized, how many times you've been immersed, uh, unless it's done by one of their ordained preachers. They will not accept your baptism. Uh, see, that's the difference between the two of us. Bible baptism is acceptable regardless of who has performed it. It is the person who receives it. Must they receive it in order to be saved? Does it require more than is in that particular verse? The only thing commanded of Cornelius was he commanded them to be baptized. Why? Well, it does require more than that. Psalm 119 verse 160 says so. Saul of Tarsus, when he asked what to do to be saved, was told by Ananias, Arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sin, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, 16. According to Mr. Ross, it doesn't require any more than that. Why, even I believe that it requires more than that. It cannot require less than that because Jesus said he had to do that. But it does require more than that. It's going to require faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, confession of that faith, and baptism in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, I think I'm in good company. Joseph Henry Thayer recognized authority on the Greek language. Page 94 of his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says, Ace aphasin hamartion in regard to baptism is to obtain the remission of sins. And he gives us his reference, Acts 2, verse 38. Albert Smith lexicon, baptizo with ace signifies the result of the action. The result of baptism is the remission or forgiveness of sins. Now that's exactly what the Bible says. Of course, Mr. Ross does not believe that. He believes being baptized with an English translation one instead of a Bible translation. Let's look at one or two other things. Henry J. Cadbury, member of the Revised Standard Version Committee, said in the revision that was made, the grammar of the sentence in Acts 2.38 is perfectly regular. Changing the person in the Greek would make no essential difference in meaning. To render the sentence, all of you repent and each of you be baptized, would not change the meaning at all. The verse still demands both repentance and baptism in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. These are men recognized as authorities in the Greek language. I would ask that, since the Bible was written in Greek, that you respect the translation that they make of it. Bob, would you like to respond to that? He well, seemed to be talking to you on that one. Well, yes, uh, I've been holding some papers here I was wanting to get to to read. I'm sure these gentlemen know Mr. Franklin Camp. He writes for a magazine called The Spiritual Sword Magazine, which, he, which I think these gentlemen have fellowship. 
Mr. Kemp says this in the Spiritual Sword of uh, 490, page 5. Just because I read a passage from the Bible does not mean it authorizes a certain doctrine or practice. My interpretation must be correct. Mr. Kemp goes on to say, Reading a passage does not necessarily authorize a doctrine or practice. Our understanding and interpretation must be correct. Now that's where we differ with the Church of Christ on this matter of baptism. We accept every passage in the Bible on baptism. Mark 16, 16, John 3, 5, Acts 2, 38, Acts 22, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, Romans 6, verses 3 to 6. That's about the extent of the passages they try to use to justify their theory. What we object to is the interpretation of saying that you must understand the purpose of baptism in order to be a Christian. These men and their denominational history are actually what is called McGarryites. They follow the doctrine of Austin McGarry of Austin, Texas, who founded a magazine called Firm Foundation. And actually, the college that Mr. McWhorter went to, Fried Hardman College, uh, the man, or rather Lipscomb College, David Lipscomb said he was baptized to obey God. That's all. He was not baptized in order to obtain or to under, he didn't have the understanding of what baptism was for as he was defining here in order to obtain. I was baptized in order to obtain the remission of sins in the only sense that baptism can remit sin. And how's that? In the same sense that the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ. I was baptized to wash away my sins in the only way that baptism can wash away sins. How's that? In the same sense that the cup and the bread are the body and the blood of Christ. When these men take the Lord's Supper and they take the bread and they say, this is my body, they quote the verse, this is my body. They take the cup, they quote the verse, this is my blood. Are they telling you that this is literally the flesh and blood of Christ? No, they say this represents it. Now, baptism is called a figure. 1 Peter 3.21 Baptism is called a likeness. Romans chapter 6. I have in my billfold a driver's license. And on that driver's license, there is a likeness. This is Bob Ross. Is that really actually the literal Bob Ross? That is a likeness of Bob Ross. What is baptism? It's the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by which we are saved. That's our salvation. Now he talked about obeying. I believe in obeying Christ in everything. And the first thing you obey him in is belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these gentlemen say, however, oh now wait a minute. You have to have more, as his chart up here said. You have to have more. Well now John... 3.18, and I challenge them on this in the first speech. I'm going to challenge them again. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Now, I challenge either one of these men to stand here and tell you that when they obeyed Christ and believed on him, that they were not condemned in that point in time. They will not tell you that because they believe they were condemned until they were baptized. One minute. All right. 
Now, John, Mark 16, 16, <clears throat> He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Why is this? Matthew 24, 13, He that endures to the end shall be saved. Why is this? Because the same thing you have in John 3, 18 is in Mark 16, 16, and it's in Matthew 24, 13, and what is it? It's faith. Faith is common to every case. But these men cannot accept the first case. And they cannot even accept the second case because they do not believe that you're, not, you're saved in the second case. You have to belong to their church. You have to observe the Lord's Supper with them. You have to do it every Sunday. You have to obey their elders or your faith is all in vain. That's why we call them McGarryites. They are a cult within the church of Christ history going back through the restoration period. They even disagree with their founder, Alexander Campbell, whose baptism they cannot accept. That's time, Bob. Dr. Morey, I want to come to you because I want to ask you this question. Um, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order to receive remission of sin. Now, it says the word for in there, and of course, as we know, for means in order to. Now, Don McCorder quoted some Greek scholars. What would you say about that? What would you say to somebody that just read that verse and they said, hey, I've got to, be, I've got to repent and I've got to be baptized in order to receive remission of sins? What would you say to them? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to state that uh, a question whether or not the Church of Christ actually would receive the baptism that is administered by Mormons by United Pentecostals and by all the other cults that baptize in the same exact understanding as the Church of Christ. If it doesn't matter, then the baptism that is given by Mormon priests, which is unto to, in order to obtain forgiveness of sin, would be perfectly acceptable to them. But that is not the case. What we find in terms of the Greek text is this. We are told uh, in terms of being baptized, the word for in the English doesn't mean in order to obtain necessarily. If you go to the store for me to buy a loaf of bread, you're not obtaining me. You're going to the store in reference to something else, in reference to my request. The same thing in terms of other passages in Scripture. We are told, for example, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, they were to be baptized unto repentance. That same word unto is the same Greek word as in Acts 2.38. It's that word ace. Does it mean that unrepentant people were baptized so they could obtain repentance? No, it doesn't mean that. It, ace simply means, when used in connection with baptism, clearly in this passage, they were baptized with a view to the fact they had already repented. Though repentance was something that had been accomplished first. They were baptized in response to that repentance. That's why when you turn to modern translation, here's the Amplified, they were baptized, and here's how they translate ace, all these Greek scholars, because of repentance. The Renaissance New Testament, because of. Phillips, as a sign of. Goodspeed, in token of. Williams, to picture. 20th century to teach, living Bible, baptize those who repent of their sins. Same thing, refer to Thayer's Greek lexicon, I'm glad they did. He states that ace can be used, quote, of reference or relation, with regard to, in reference to, as regards. Now, when you turn over to Acts 2, 38, you find the following things. 
There is a parallel between these two passages. Both are talking about baptism. Both use the Greek word ace. Baptize ace repentance. Baptize ace remission of sins. Proposition number two. Since ace used in connection with baptism in Matthew 3.11 means that these people were baptized with a view to the fact that they had already repented, then it is perfectly proper to see that ace used in Acts 2.38 means that these people were baptized with a view to the fact that their sins had already been forgiven. This is not something that comes out of the blue. This is in reference to what is clearly taught. We are to baptize people who have repented of their sins. One minute, Doctor. I doubt very seriously they have ever baptized unbelieving, unrepentant people. But you baptize people who have repented, people who have believed, people who have had their sins washed away in the blood of Jesus. The idea that we should baptize unrepentant, unbelieving, unforgiven sinners is not found. Faith and repentance must always precede baptism. If the cult of the Campbellites was true, you would find baptized, then repentance and faith, but they must repent and believe first, and then once they are repentant believers, then they can be baptized. And I could also go through, but my time is out, in terms of many modern translations and Greek scholars that translate Acts 2.38, they must be baptized with a view to, in the light of, as a response to, to the fact that their sins had been forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Dr. Morey. Bobby, I want to come to you and ask you a question. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, you believe that for there, and Don quoted some Greek scholars that state for means in order to, but even in the English, as Dr. Morey brought out, for does not have to mean in order to. If I take an aspirin for a headache, I'm not taking an aspirin in order to obtain a headache. I'm taking an aspirin because of a headache. How would you respond to that? I would respond to that by saying that that's the reason we need to understand that the English translations are translations of the Greek language. And so in order to find out the meaning of an English word in the New Testament, we need to find out what the word that was translated by that English word was in the original Greek. For example, we understand, and, and these fellows make the argument on the word baptizo in the Greek, that it does not mean to sprinkle or to pour. Now, were they to consider just the English definition of the word, uh, they would have to agree that baptizo, or the word baptism, means to sprinkle or pour. It can mean that. For that reason, they consult the Greek lexicons and insist that baptism is a burial or immersion in water. I'd like for us to look at the chart where you had uh, Weymouth and Phillips and these fellows' translation of Matthew 3.11, if I can do that, please. Can you find it here? I believe it's the first one or the second one that you showed. In the meanwhile, let me read to you. Now, these were translations when he gave these translations of Weymouth and Phillips and uh, Charles B. Williams. He was talking about Matthew 3.11. But let me read to you what Weymouth says in his translation when he translates Acts 2.38. In translating that particular, well, Charles B. Williams, who incidentally was a member of the Baptist church, translates Acts 2.38, 
Peter said to them, you must repent, and as an expression of it, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that you may have your sins forgiven. Now, Williams uh, translates, and, well, he didn't give Williams here, he gives... gives this is the Acts 2.38, some of the translations, such as Weymouth, baptized with a view to, is what Weymouth You're says. You're holding my time, time aren't you? Mm-hmm. With a view to the remission of your sins, is what Weymouth's translation says, which is exactly what I believe that Acts 2, I really appreciate your bringing that up and pointing out that Weymouth does translate, repent, replied Peter, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, with a view to the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, let me mention one or two things that were said. In the first place, in Matthew 3.11, where he talks about that they were baptized unto repentance, refers simply to the fact that they were baptized unto the preaching of John. They uh, were not baptized in order that they might repent, as uh, Dr. Morley pointed out, but they were baptized toward the preaching of John. In Matthew 26 and 28, we have an exact parallel, an exact uh, statement of the same words you have in Acts 2.38 for the remission of sins. And in that passage, Jesus said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now the question is, why was Jesus' blood shed? Was it shed because people already had the remission of sins? Was it shed merely with reference to the forgiveness of their sins? Or was his blood shed in order that their sins might be forgiven? I think all of us will agree that Jesus shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. In the English and in the Greek, it's the same identical phrase in Acts 2.38 where Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I'd like for us to look at a chart, please. If you can give me chart number 14. Chart number 14. In this particular chart, it's pointed out that, that saving faith uh, involves more than just a mental ascent. For example, in Acts 16 and uh, verse 30, the passage uh, that was referred to where the jailer asked, uh, what shall I do to be saved? And the answer was given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The word believe there involved more than simply believing. It, it, in, it, in, thank you. it involves doing what the Lord said do. Um, the, um, the word grace, for example, includes everything that God did to make our salvation possible. The word faith, the word belief, includes everything that we do to make our salvation a reality. In Romans 10 and 10, the Bible says that one believes unto salvation. In Acts 11 and 18, the Bible says that one repents unto salvation. In Acts 2.38, the Bible says that one is baptized unto salvation, unto the remission of sins. And so Acts 2.38 says to those people who ask, what shall we do? And they wanted to know what can we do to receive forgiveness of having crucified the Lord. Peter gave the answer by saying, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Thank you so much, Bobby. Don, would you like a one-minute closing statement? Let me just uh, read a statement or two. 
Carl H. Morgan, dean of the Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, said, I do not know of any Greek lexicon which gives ace the meaning because of. Uh, all of these scholars say ace denotes that which is in the future, not which is in the past. I would simply state that when the statement was made, there is no place in the Bible where people were ever baptized except those whose sins were already washed away. Uh, what about Saul of Tarsus when he was told, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty-two sixteen. His sins had not been washed away at that time. If so, he didn't know it. If so, God didn't know it. If so, then the preacher who was sent to him didn't know it. Everybody was in ignorance on that. Thank you. Bob, would you like to respond to that? Well, yes. Uh, in reference to Saul of Tarsus, uh, that was the sense in which baptism can wash away sins. Uh, I believe that baptism can and does wash away sins. Don't misunderstand. But we do not believe this is a literal washing away of sins. Even these men here will deny that baptism literally washes away sin. Baptism is a likeness, Romans chapter 6, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, by which, as this man quoted Matthew 26, the death of Jesus Christ actually does atone for our sins. Now, he tried to equate Matthew 26 and Acts 2 for the remission of sins as the same identical thing. Listen, friends, baptism did not die for your sins. Baptism cannot wash away your sins like the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he was actually, literally dying under the curse of the wrath of God, and that's not what happens when you're baptized. You don't suffer the same death that Jesus did. Dr. Morey, would you like to comment on that? Yes, uh, they don't seem to be aware of the fact that there are many Greek scholars and Greek lexicons. For example, the Weiss translation of Acts 2.38 be baptized in relation to the fact that your sins have been put away. Well-known New Testament Greek scholar, Randy Yeager, the Renaissance New Testament, be baptized because of Weymouth with a view to, Marshall with a view to. Look at the writings of A.T. Robertson, Dr. Daney, Dr. Manta, uh, Manti, whose Greek grammar is still used today. Uh, I can point out multitudes of translations and Greek scholars that point out that the word ace in the New Testament used in connection with baptism. Take John the Baptist. He baptized unto remission of sins, yet it did not save anybody because in Acts 19 they had to be baptized all over again. I submit that the Church of Christ cannot accept those Mormons and United Pentecostals and uh, other Christadelphians and other cults that baptize with exactly the same doctrine they have because their agenda of salvation Dr. involves more. Bobby, the most controversial thief in the world was the thief that hung next to Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, historical evangelical Christianity contends that the thief was saved apart from any works, and yet the churches of Christ say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, but the thief was never baptized. And Jesus promised him, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, how do you respond to that? Thank you, Jerry. And I'm delighted to talk about the uh, very famous thief. But let me say, first of all, that I am delighted to have the opportunity of being on this program. And I do indeed appreciate these men who have come to study with us. I think that our time cannot be spent in any better way 
than in studying what the Word of God says. The thief on the cross is indeed a very, very wonderful example of one who was saved by Jesus Christ. Saved in the same way that all of us are saved, that is, by the grace of God. But we need to remember that the thief on the cross lived under a different dispensation, a different period of time, a different law from the law under which we live. In Hebrews 9, verse 15 beginning, the Bible says, And for this cause he, Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions which were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. At the time Jesus gave salvation to the thief, his testament was not in effect. It was not a force for the simple reason that Jesus had not died and a testament is a force after men are dead. But now, in connection with that, it needs to be observed that the thief was not saved by believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Bible says, And that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Suppose I were to come here today insisting that one does not have to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And you say, why? My answer would be, well, the thief on the cross was certainly saved. And he didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, there's a sense in which we can say the thief was not saved by the gospel. For in, Rome, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. And then he said, here's what I preached. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, Paul said, you were saved by believing that gospel. But friends, the thief did not believe that. He's not an example for us to use. If we want to find an example for us to follow today, so far as what uh, a sinner is to do to be saved, look at Acts 2 or Acts 8 or the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 or Cornelius in Acts 10 or the Corinthians in Acts 18 and 8 or the Ephesians in Acts 19. There are so many cases of conversion to which we could refer under the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But one other thing in connection with that. Suppose I were to say, I just don't know about the thief on the cross. Would that mean that Acts 2.38 is not true? That Mark 16.16, 16, which says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned, is not true? That Acts 22 and 16 is not true, which says one is baptized to wash away his sins. That 1 Peter 3.21 is not true, which says baptism saves us. That Galatians 3 and 27 is not true, which says we're baptized into Jesus Christ. That Romans 6 and 4, which says we're baptized into the death of Christ, does not save us. And then in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 6, after talking about the fact that we were buried with him in baptism, 
were raised up to walk in newness of life. The Bible says, but thanks be to God that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin. When? When they obeyed from the heart that form. What was that form? They were buried with the Lord in baptism. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Have I used up my time? Do I have No, a sir, you have not. A minute 19. Thank you. I'd like to direct attention then to the fact that there were many examples of people who were saved by Christ before Jesus died on the cross. But, and they were saved in different ways. For example, the thief on the cross, the rich young ruler in Mark 10 is a wonderful example. He came to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Keep the commandments. And he asked which ones, and Jesus named six of the Ten Commandments. And then he said, I've done all of this. And then Jesus said, You like one thing. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Nobody has ever asked me, Why can't we be saved like the rich young ruler? But they want to be saved like the thief on the cross instead of doing what the Lord said do in order to be saved. Dr. Morey, that's an interesting question. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that uh, when uh, my esteemed colleague stated that the gospel was not preached beforehand, he is contradicting the word of God, which tells us in Galatians 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. The same thing in Hebrews 4, verse 2, Unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, speaking of the Jews under Moses. The Apostle Paul proves in the book of Romans that the doctrine of the New Testament, which was justification by faith, apart from any further obedience to the law, was the exact same message preached in the Old Testament. He argues in chapter 3 and in verse 29 and 30 that since there is only one God, there is only one way of salvation. He proves this in chapter 4 by stating that Abraham was justified through faith. This was before the giving of the law. Then he quotes from David in verse 6 to prove that after the law, sinners could be justified by faith without any further obedience. Now he proves his point in terms of circumcision. Circumcision and baptism are linked together in the New Testament just like the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And Paul argues this way. He states, verse 10, was Abraham justified by his faith before he was circumcised or after? The answer is before he was circumcised. His circumcision, verse 11, was the sign or symbol of his faith that led to his justification. So he was circumcised because he was a child of God. In the New Testament, the rite of baptism is what takes uh, the place of circumcision. 
And we could likewise argue that someone is not justified after they are ba uh, baptized or during their baptism, but their justification takes place before. So the Apostle Paul simply says this, it doesn't matter if we're talking the different dispensations, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, or you want to talk about uh, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic. I don't care which of the eight covenants you want to talk about. There's only one God. There's only one way of salvation, and that's by repentance and faith in that God, be it turn unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and you will be saved, or to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Baptism is no more essential to salvation than circumcision is essential to salvation. Baptism, if it were essential to salvation, would have been required in Abraham's day. It would have been required under Moses. But Paul said, with circumcision, which was the exact parallel, both being signs of the covenant, circumcision availeth nothing. Circumcision did not create the reality of regeneration. It merely pictured it. And thus the parallel is drawn in Colossians 2 that baptism being the parallel to circumcision symbolizes the same thing, the cutting off of the fleshly nature, regeneration, the new birth. So the business of saying, oh well, the thief on the cross was saved some other way, he was saved under the old covenant, fails to observe, one, uh, that the thief died after Christ died, so the covenant was in effect when, when uh, the thief died. But most importantly, number two, this means that if he was saved by faith, apart from any further obedience under the old covenant, then I wish I were under the old covenant because it was easier to get saved then than it is now if the Campbellites are right because you would have to have the availability of water and you would have to have baptism and thus that is more complicated than the old way. Bob, Dr. Morey brings up an interesting point. Was it easier to be saved under the old covenant than it is the new covenant? The Spiritual Sword Magazine, which is a Church of Christ publication out of Memphis, Tennessee, it says this, The thief lived and died during the period that the law of Moses was still in force. The law of Moses presented a plan of righteousness which demanded perfection of obedience. Now, if he puts the thief on the basis of the Old Testament plan, as they call it, or as the spiritual sword has, says here, the law of Moses, which demanded a plan of righteousness, which was perfection of obedience. How in the world could the thief on the cross be saved? Now, all this is, is a, uh, actually an escape hatch they use to get around the fact that the Bible teaches one end to the other, that men are saved on the basis of one thing. And that's the death of Jesus Christ for sin. Now, in the book of Hebrews, which he read a smattering of, uh, there's a scripture there that shows us that the death of Christ saves men in the Old Testament, and it saves men since that time that he died. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. Now that takes in the First Testament and it takes in the New Testament 
And according to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, that testament that he was talking about in Hebrews, uh, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would come and die for the sins of everybody that would be saved. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was foreordained of God. That was God's plan of salvation. Now, you say, well, this Old Testament law of Moses demanded these things, but what could you accomplish by following the law of Moses? Did they literally put away sin? Those sacrifices and acts of obedience that are mentioned? Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 1, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Can never make them perfect. And then in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Then in verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. That would not satisfy the justice of God, you see. Then in verse 11, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Now what's Paul saying? Verse 1, the law having a shadow, a shadow of better or of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Now that's why we say that baptism stands in the same relation to Christ as the Old Testament ordinances stood. They were shadows of the coming of Christ and baptism is the likeness of the coming of Christ which is in the past tense. You see, baptism shows the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in a likeness, Romans chapter 6, in a figure, 1 Peter 3.21. Now in the Old Testament, John the Baptist, when he came, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was talking about the lambs that were being offered back then in the sense that Christ was the fulfillment. The Passover lamb, all these sacrifices, the Old Testament, were pointing to Christ. Now when a man brought them and offered them in an act of obedience, did they literally take away his sins? In Hebrews it said they never took away sins. So when Christ died, he was ratifying or fulfilling the condition of that eternal covenant of eternity that he would die and on that basis the sins of everyone that's ever saved, Old Testament, New Testament, any testament, that's how we're saved, that Christ died to take away our sins. And when that thief looked at him on the cross, Jesus forgave him because Jesus was dying for the man's sin. This man couldn't obey the law. He couldn't obey the new covenant or the old covenant. He was hanging on a cross. Thank you. Don, that's, that's an interesting question that Dr. Morey presented, and really I kind of want to throw it back to you. Would it be easier to be saved under the old covenant than the new covenant? Oh, absolutely not. Okay, but the thief on the cross was saved according to you and the churches of Christ under the old covenant, and yet he didn't have to do anything. Oh, yes, he did. Okay, Besides believing. In Acts chapter 10, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, from which the reading was made just a moment ago, the death of Jesus pointed both backward and forward. He died for the souls of just men who were now made perfect because Jesus had died for them. There was no salvation for them. They received only a promissory note, an IOU from God. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for their sins. Uh, and as a result, they had to be just men. Now they are perfected. Now we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith is an active faith. 
As a matter of fact, in James chapter 2, James makes it abundantly clear. We're talking about Abraham, and we were told a while ago that uh, Abraham was saved before any work. Notice what James says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how that faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. You know, it's very easy for us to say, all you have to do is just believe. And yet you have a clear statement in the Word of God that says, it's not by faith only. I well remember the day I left the Methodist Church. Someone came to me with the confession of faith from the Methodist Church, the discipline, opened it up, wherefore that men are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine, very full of comfort. James 2.24, and laid it on the other side, where James says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, salvation is not by faith only. And said, now, Don, you will have to accept one or the other. I chose to accept what the Bible said. And I would hope that would be what all of us would do. A great deal has been said about this being, baptism being only an image, baptism being only a picture. Would you put up for me, please, a uh, chart? Let's see, what chart is this? This would be chart number 24. This is called the fundamentalist's rule of Bible, of Bible interpretation. Dr. David L. Cooper, who is called by many Baptists as being one of the greatest Bible scholars and Baptists and uh, Greek scholars who ever lived, said, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate text clearly indicate otherwise. What is there in the text that would state. You know, we saw that Jesus is the very image of God. What is an image? Well, we're told that it, an image is a picture. What did God mean in the Old Testament when he said, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images? A picture. Jesus came as the very image. Was he only a picture of God? No. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was God in the flesh. He was literal God. And so this is a literal matter. Now would you put up, please, uh, the next chart... Uh, I want us to look at the uh, chart that uh, tells us in verse in uh, chart number 25 uh, the difference between literal and figurative. We're told that baptism has to be a figurative thing. Acts 26:18 says we're sanctified by faith. They say, "Oh, that's literal." We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Romans 15:16. That's literal. We're sanctified by truth, Romans 17:17. 17, 17, that's literal. Sanctified by the washing of water by the word. That's just a picture. That's not literal. On what basis would you say three of those are literal and one of them is only figurative? There is nothing in the context that would indicate anything else. They all fall into the same category. As a matter of fact, they're all speaking about exactly the same thing. Now, I want us to look one minute. at the understanding that many people have, a misunderstanding of perhaps the most overlooked page in the Bible, and that's that blank page that exists between the New Testament and the Old Testament. If there's no difference between the two, why was there a distinction made when God wrote it? Why did he say that the Old Testament was dedicated only with animal blood and the New Testament was dedicated only with the blood of Jesus Christ? Those things that are sanctified only by animal blood, 
such as the burning of incense, the use of instruments of music in the worship service, all of those things that were characteristic of the Old Testament, and made acceptable because, as Paul said, in the times of that ignorance, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. It's very obvious that what we do must be sanctified under the new covenant. Now, true, the grace of God reached back in the Old Testament to save just men. But in the New Testament, Hebrews 5, 9, he saves those who obey him. John, I need a one-minute quick wrap-up from everybody. And, Bobby, I'm going to let you go first. Thank you. Certainly, certainly we all agree that everybody from Abraham on down to our time until the end of the world, and going back beyond that to Adam, if saved, will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the thief was not saved by believing the gospel in the sense that we believe the gospel, which is what I said. The old people under the Old Testament law were saved by the grace of Christ, but not according to the terms of the New Testament. Dr. Morey? Yes, you will find in James clearly in verse 21 of chapter 2, when it talks about Abraham being justified by works, it says, when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul clearly is referring to the initial call of Abraham long before any of this, when he became a believer, when he was justified before God. Uh, my friend simply uh, discobobulated the two situations and has drawn a parallel where none exists in Scripture. Bob. Well, I think these gentlemen are short of the mark on their concept of the gospel. They are talking about some of the historical facts that actually lead men to the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. When John came, he called attention to behold the Lamb of God. And when Peter made his great confession in Matthew 16, Jesus asked him who he was. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life. They might know thee, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John wrote his book in chapter 20, verse 31, to teach one thing, basically, that Jesus was the Christ, and that believing that, you would have eternal life. Now, in the book of Acts, when Philip baptized the eunuch, he asked him about Jesus Christ. And when Paul had his revelation on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus is the Christ. Now, all these other things that lead to that and point to that, baptism, Lord's Supper, preaching, words, types, shadows, emblems, all that that leads to Christ is good, but it's not the heart of the gospel. Don, wrap us up. All right, I think the basic misunderstanding is on this word believe. It is used in its saving sense in a continuing sense. John 3.18 has been brought up continually. Whosoever believeth on that means keeps on believing. Suppose a man says, Jesus is the Son of God. And the man says, I believe that. Well, he's believing. The gospel says, repent. The man says, I believe that. He keeps on believing. The Bible says, confess the name of Jesus. I will do that. He keeps on believing. The Bible says, baptism doth now save us. The man says, I don't believe that. Is he still a believer? No. He's an unbeliever now. The gospel saves those who keep on believing. When a man ceases to believe, then those passages that talk about God having grace toward salvation extended to the believer cease to belong to him. He's an unbeliever once he quits accepting what God said. Representing historic evangelical Christianity is Bob L. Ross, author, researcher, and lecturer on the Churches of Christ. Seated next to him, Dr. Robert A. Morey, author, lecturer, graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. 
Next to him is Bobby Duncan, who is a pastor in Adamsville, Alabama. And next to him, Don McHorder, who has received his degree from David Lipskin College. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us today. Bob, we've been talking about a lot of different aspects pertaining to his baptism essential for salvation. But on this program, I want to take a different approach. In 1827, a man by the name of Walter Scott baptized a gentleman at Bush Run Creek, if I'm correct, and claimed that he restored the gospel. Well, if he restored the gospel, that would mean the gospel was lost. Basically, my question is this. What is the historical relations of the Church of Christ to other Christian churches? Well, Jerry, when uh, I was a young man and I was converted, I had been attending for a little while the Church of Christ with some friends and after actually I was converted, they began to try to persuade me to join the Church of Christ. And one of the arguments they used was that the Church of Christ was very ancient. It could trace itself way back. And they began to show me some pictures of some tombstones and dates on wine bottles or theories about them. And so this kind of induced me to read the history of the Church of Christ. And I got some of their own books and read their history. And here's what I found out. That Alexander Campbell and his father Thomas were Presbyterians. Walter Scott, Barton Stone, uh, he was Presbyterian, and Scott, he was somewhat of a, a Protestant of some sort. Well, anyway, make a long story short because we are short of time. These men are described, I've got literature on my lap, Gospel Advocate, Spiritual Sword, magazines from the Church of Christ. These men are described in their literature as being restorers. This word restorationism is used by a man named Dabney Phillips, which these men here no doubt recognize, published in the Gospel Guardian. And he refers to this movement as restorationism. And they taught that the church had been lost completely. The gospel had been completely lost. There was no church, no gospel, and along comes the Campbells, Scott and Stone, and after a due process of time, they supposedly restored all these things. According to Garland Elkins here in the Spiritual Sword, July of 1974, they restored the church, they restored the gospel, they restored worship, they restored the organization. Now, my problem is this. I'm looking for a Church of Christ preacher, historian, school, faculty, or anybody who will take their history and back up their claims. I've been debating these men for 30 years, and I haven't found one of them yet that will take their own history and demonstrate that Alexander Campbell obeyed their so-called gospel plan. The man was baptized in 1812 by a Baptist preacher, and then in 1823 he said he came to the conclusion that baptism was for or in order to obtain the remission of sins, and he did not get rebaptized. Then in 1827, Scott, as you referred to, baptized by a man, a man by the name of William Amen, and they say for the first time since apostolic times, and Mr. Amen went off then and joined the Mormons after that, so their first convert flew the coop right away. Now, they've got all this, and not a one of these men understood that baptism was what these men teach it is today, that you've got to understand its purpose, 
in order for it to be valid. I'm looking for a Church of Christ preacher, either these men or someone they want to bring on from their colleges, from their church history teachers, from the faculties of their schools, who will take their history and try to show us some reconciliation between the actual facts of history and what they claim. If Campbell and Stone and Scott and so forth restored the church, I want to know where they did it, I want to know when they did it, and I, know, I want to know how they could do it with ever, without ever having had scriptural baptism. Now you tell me, you men tell me, if Campbell obeyed the gospel in 1811 when he said he was already saved, he was saved, he said, before he was baptized. You know, the word Camelite, I'm more of a Camelite than these fellows because I was saved before baptism just like Alexander Campbell. And when I was baptized, I was baptized simply to obey God like Alexander Campbell said he was. And uh, he never taught in all his life, for instance, that one had to understand baptism to be saved. He never taught that uh, there were no Christians in other groups besides his group, for instance. And yet that's what this heritage of his called the Restoration Movement has come to the day. They exclude other people as being Christians, and unless you believe their theory on the purpose of baptism, you do not obey the gospel according to them. If you just believe and are baptized to obey God, they say you're wrong because you've got to know why and believe why you're baptized for the right purpose. Bobby, I want to come to you because the founder of your movement was not rebaptized with the mindset that it was in order to give remission of sins. I mean, Alexander Campbell wasn't saved then, according to your teachings today. Jerry, I really am glad you put it that way. And I'd, li I'd like to make it clear that the founder of the church that I'm a member of was not Alexander Campbell. And I'm glad that Mr. Ross um, has recognized the fact that we're not Campbellites. And he's written a book in which he many, many times throughout at least one book calls us Campbellites. And now then, he agrees that we're not Campbellites. And that's certainly true. Uh, I can take the Bible and show that what I teach and what I practice is true. I'm not interested in taking some modern-day history and showing that what I do is exactly what Thomas Scott or Walter Scott or Alexander or Thomas Campbell or John T. Johnson or Martin Luther or anyone else did. That's not what's important. The important thing is that I conform my life to what the Bible teaches. Now, with reference to the matter of restoration, I wonder, is it being suggested that it's impossible to restore ancient New Testament Christianity in the 20th century? Are we saying that it just cannot be done? Suppose we were to go to an area where no one has ever seen the Bible. and We find people who don't know anything at all about religion. We begin to teach and preach just exactly what the New Testament teaches, what Paul preached, what the apostles preached. And people obey that just exactly as people did in New Testament times. What would they be? What would they become? Would they become Camelites? Suppose I'm the one who went and, and did the preaching. If they obeyed what the Bible teaches, they wouldn't become Duncanites. They would become Christians. In Luke 8, 11, Jesus said the seed is the Word of God. Seed reproduces after its kind. 
if the New Testament gospel produced Christians in the first century, churches of Christ in the first century, that same gospel when preached and obeyed today will produce the same thing today that it produced in the first century. If it is indeed the seed, the word of God, and that's what Jesus had to say about it. Now, in New Testament times, the uh, churches were referred to in Romans 16 and 16 as churches of Christ. They were organized in a certain way. They worshiped in a certain way. There were certain terms of entrance, a certain plan of salvation. If today we preach that same gospel, people believe it and obey it just as people did in New Testament times. If the congregations are organized just as they were in New Testament times, if the members of those congregations worship on the same day and in the very same way that people did in New Testament times, if people enter into those uh, congregations just as people did in New Testament times by believing and obeying the gospel, what would they become? Regardless of who did the preaching, they wouldn't become Duncanites. They wouldn't become Campbellites. They wouldn't become Methodists or Baptists or Catholics. They would become Christians. The churches would be churches of Christ. Unless it can be shown that I have done something to become a member of the church that I'm a member of other than what the Bible teaches, or unless it can be shown that I'm teaching something other than what the Bible teaches, that I insist that I'm a member of the church of Christ that I can read about in the Bible. I don't believe anybody would say it's a sin for you people to eat the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Some may say, well, you don't have to do it that way. But nobody says it's a sin for you to do it that way. I don't believe anybody would say it's a sin for you to sing a cappella without the use of a mechanical instrument. Oh, there are some people who say it really doesn't make any difference. But nobody says it's a sin for us to do it that way. Nobody would say it's a sin for you to wear the name Christian and the name Christian only. Well, you have to attach some, some man's name. Nobody would say that. Nobody would say it's a sin for you to teach people that they must believe and obey the gospel to be saved. In other words, what I teach and practice is not really called in question. We're in agreement that all of this is safe. That's what people did in New Testament times. If we do that today, then we will have the church of Christ. Don, the restoration movement, and that, that seems to indicate that something had to be restored. Something was lost. Yet Jesus specifically said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I've, I've, I've read a lot of your literature. I've read a lot of their literature. And no matter what, you're going to trace back the teaching of baptismal remission to Alexander Campbell. Unless you want to align yourself with Roman Catholicism or, or other groups that, that are basically even considered cultic by yourself. And that teaching seems to center point in your theology. Now, for something to be lost or to be restored, it had to be lost. And Jesus said that the gospel will never be lost. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I guess that's the question I need answered. All right. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He told us, Luke 8, 11, the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. You know, somebody came to my house and said, do you have any corn? And I say, no, I don't have any. And I show them a large field and there's no corn growing there. But if I have seed in the crib, I still have corn. Since that seed never has been destroyed, never will be destroyed, 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my word will not pass away. As long as you have the seed, you have it there. But now he said that there would be times when the church would not be in existence on this earth except in seed form. Paul warned the elders of the church at Ephesus that they should take heed to themselves, to the flock over which the Holy Ghost had made them overseers, to feed the church of the Lord, which he had purchased with his own blood. He said, This I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. You see, it's really a moot question. It's not a question of who does the preaching. If a man by the name of Johnson sows Timothy grass, what's he going to get, Johnson grass or Timothy grass? It doesn't matter what his name is. If he sows Timothy grass, that's what he'll get. When you sow the seed of the kingdom, that's what you get. When I obeyed the gospel, became a member of the church that Jesus built, Matthew 16, 18, I'd never heard of Alexander Campbell. As a matter of fact, my wife is a direct descendant of, Abraham, of uh, Alexander Campbell. And uh, she knew very little about Campbell until we did some study together. There were many churches of Christ in existence. Hans Grimm chases the uh, existence of the Church of Christ in Europe back before 1000, back before the year 1000, exactly as the Church of Christ is today, in scattered places to be sure. But see, the important thing is, if you preach the gospel and sow the seed, Jesus saves those who obey him, Hebrews 5 verse 9. Over near Bridgeport, Alabama, congregation Rocky Springs, I've preached there. They have business notes from that congregation. They believed and practiced the same thing in 1804 they believe now, before Campbell ever even thought of coming to America. Now, where this idea that the Church of Christ is connected in some way with Alexander Campbell, I don't know. I'm glad to hear that there was a sort of a renunciation of that. I would like to look at two or three charts in closing. Would you put up, please, chart 30? In chart 30, I want us to see some things that uh, are, I think, very important to our discussion. Because in chart 30, uh, we're going to see that it's necessary that we look at God's Word and understand what God says about this matter of obeying His gospel. Can one be saved before he's born again, John 3, 5? Before his sins are forgiven, Acts 2, 38. Before his sins are washed away, Acts 22, 16. Before he's in Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Before he's a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Before he puts on Christ, Galatians 3, 27. Before he reaches the blood, Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Before he's where salvation is, 2 Timothy 2, 10. Before he's regenerated, Titus 3, 5. Before Jesus said he would be, Jesus said he would be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The question has been all through this discussion. Can one be saved before and without baptism? If he can, he can be saved before any of these happen. Indeed, before Jesus said he would be. One must be in Christ in order to be saved. How does one get in Christ? Salvation is in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 10. Only twice in the Bible does God tell us how to get into Christ. Romans 6, 3, and 4, we are baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, 26, and 27, believers are baptized into Christ. We have a plain statement from the Word of God that man is not saved by faith only. James 2, verse 24. Would you put up number 19, please? If man is not saved by faith only, then he must be by sa faith, saved by faith plus. By faith plus what? Repentance. Jesus said so in Acts 2. These who believed were told, repent and be baptized. If man is not saved by faith only, he must be saved by faith plus confession. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart. 
If one is not saved by faith only, he must be saved by faith plus baptism. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Remember, the key to the interpretation of the Word of God is the statement made by the inspired writer in Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of thy word is truth. Not just taking a verse out of context, looking at the whole thing together. And when you see the whole thing together, it is not by faith only. It is by faith doing whatever God said do. If God said repent, God said confess, if God said be baptized, it's by doing what he said do. Dr. Morey, in the aspect of faith, believing, repentance, are these different acts or are they all the same thing as our friends contend? Well, we've already discussed as in 1 Thessalonians, they turn from idols to God. Repentance is where you turn away from. Faith is when you turn to. And the one action of turning away and turning to is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. But more to the point of what the gentlemen have just said, I'd have to say, Brother Bob, I'm sorry. Once again, they failed you. I've read the church history, uh, the books that they have given, uh, the magazines, the textbooks written by their professors. I have yet to find a single Church of Christ uh, debater who will defend what their own institutions put out as the history of their own movement. Now, I need to point out something that's very fascinating. Everything that these two gentlemen have said, not only in this session, but everyone that we've had up to this point, are exactly the same things and the same arguments that would be given by the Mormons, who also call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ. That is, if I were to say, I give up and I accept these two men, that baptism is essential to salvation, that doesn't mean I have to join their group. The Mormons say the same thing. There are those who call themselves the disciples of Christ. There are those who call themselves the Christian church. There are those in the Christadelphians who call themselves the brethren of Christ. There are those who are the United Pentecostals who say exactly the same thing. Now, when I, for example, confront a Jehovah's Witness and say, listen, you Jehovah's Witness people, do you know your particular interpretation of the Bible comes from Charles Taz Russell? They say, oh, no, we don't discuss history. That's not important. The real issue is our faith goes from the Bible. When I confront Mormon elders and say, you know, your religion really started with Joseph Smith. Oh, no, no, our faith is just found in the scriptures. It started in the New Testament, and, and we don't want to discuss history. When I deal with the United Pentecostals, the Christadelphians, the Seventh-day Adventists, all of those little cults and groups that grew out of the 19th century all of them get acute amnesia when it comes to the historical origins of their own movement. So number one, I have to go by the, the dictionaries, the textbooks, the scholarly journals, what uh, Church of Christ scholars have said about their, old, uh, their own origins in terms of the Campbellites. Number two, every argument that they have given is nothing more than what we would find with the Mormons or the United Pentecostals or a dozen other groups. So even if you accepted their view of salvation, then you still have to pay your nickel and take your choice, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, which cult stays and which cult goes. It comes down in the final analysis to this. By their fruits, you shall know them. The Campbells in their restored gospel with their teaching that the gospel had been lost and now had been restored... This was picked up, and this was used to start Mormonism. As a matter of fact, Alexander Campbell complained 
because his fellow uh, Church of Christ members such as Sidney Rigdon, Parley Pratt, Oliver Crawley, Orson Hyde, Layman White, Edward Partridge, and John Carell, on and on, Church of Christ people flocked over to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith taught the exact same view of the restored gospel and of the church and of baptism that uh, was taught by the Campbells. And thus you have the Mormons as the fruit of the Campbellite movement. Also the Christadelphians. The Christadelphians, I was then going to get to them. When you deal with Dr. John Thomas, who was a personal friend and fellow preacher with Campbell, he went on to start his own cult, which he called Christ's Brethren. Remember, you have those who say, well, the Christian church, not the church of Christ. It's the Christian church is the true church. Well, the Campbellites did that, the Christadelphians. From the Christadelphians, you go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they developed out of this teaching. So by their fruits, you shall know them. The Campbellite movement is the mother of the major cults that attack the gospel today at the end of the 20th century. Bob, they have said that they're not Campbellites. Well, uh, certainly they have Bob gone... Bob said we're not Campbellites. <laughs> certainly they have gone far beyond Alexander Campbell because actually these men here, if they were really honest with the facts, they couldn't regard Campbell, Scott, and Stone as Christians. I debated Bill Jackson back in January, and I took the platform during a question and answer session. I took the biographies, there's one of them, of Cam the two Campbells, Scott and Stone, and I said, I can stand here on this platform and on the basis of these men professing faith in Jesus Christ before salvation, on the basis of their profession, what they said, I can say these men were saved because they said they were saved before they were baptized. But Bill Jackson, who was up there supposedly as an heir of these very men, he could not affirm that the own, his own men, who he called restorers of the church, were Christians. He didn't know whether they were saved or not. But let me refute something that's been said here. The word faith only. Do it quickly. The word faith only has been thrown around here. And I want to define what Church of Christ people say that it is and deny that we believe it. If salvation is by faith only, it is without love, without repentance, without confession, and without obedience. Now, how many Baptists in the world believe that when you believe in Jesus Christ and you have faith, you don't have any love, you don't have any repentance, you don't have any confession, and you don't have any obedience. Why, faith itself is obedience. You are commanded to believe, and when you obey the command to believe, you're, you're obeying, aren't you? But now they say that faith only means they don't have any love, they don't have any repentance, they don't have any confession, and they don't have any obedience. Now there was a time when these men are going to have to say they had faith only and didn't have any of those Bobby, things I'm going to have before to cut baptism. You off there. I'm sorry. Uh, Bobby, you go ahead and make a real quick comment. We've got to close this up. Thank you, Jerry. Once again, thanks for the opportunity of being here. I think we've just been paid some of the greatest compliments that we can be paid whenever somebody says they've just clouded the issue. They haven't dealt with the history. They insist on going back and saying, this is what the Bible teaches. Folks, that's exactly where we stand. And in uh, one of the speech, in the fir first speech I made, I said, it's a matter of what our attitude is toward the Bible, the Word of God. And we stand upon the Bible, the Word of God. It'll stand when the world's on fire, as my mother used to say. You know, the Bible says nothing about faith only, except to say it's not by faith only. 
You know, the first time faith only was known in this world was in Romans 3.28 when Martin Luther added the word faith alone and then denied that the book of James even belonged in the Bible. And, of course, that's where these men are coming from. The words faith only are never found in a Baptist confession of faith that we believe it. I Dr. challenge you to find it. Dr. Morey? Uh, once again, I'd say everything you gentlemen have said, a Mormon elder could say, uh, United Pentecostal, your teachings are not unique. It's just one example of many cults, and they all defend themselves by all saying they go back to the Bible because they run from history just as you do. Dr. Morey, I got a question for you. Faith only, faith alone. Which is it? What are we justified? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 first says, For by grace are you saved through faith alone. Well, number one, only. it's a false problem because James is talking about justifying yourself before other people. He says, show me. He's not talking about showing God. That's why he dealt with Abraham uh, having to sacrifice his son, not with Abraham's salvation, but with Abraham's sanctification. So it's a false issue. The scriptural terminology, we are saved by faith apart from any further obedience to the law. Gentlemen, I want to thank you all for being here today. I really appreciate it. Let's give them a big round of applause, if you will. Thank you so much. We hope to see you next time on What Does the Bible Say? This is Jerry Johnson saying God bless and have a good day. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens. <laughs>